0: About 650 years ago, a woman named Julian of Norwich wrote a book called Revelations of Divine Love. Revelations of Divine Love is perhaps the oldest known book written by a woman, but it's also been a book used by many to encourage them to help them understand God's love and to know more about it. There are many famous passages or well-known passages. Perhaps you're familiar with One of them is where Julian says, And all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's this picture of a reminder of God's goodness and who God is and that even in the midst of all that was going on and Julian lived in the late 1300s, early 1400s in these times of plagues and massive death and she could still say and all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. But there's another quote that I want to begin with and she says this. She says, and in this he showed me something small, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand as it seemed to me. And it was as round as a ball. I looked at it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what can this be? I was amazed that it could last. For I thought nothing, that because of its littleness, it would suddenly have fallen into nothing. And I was answered in my understanding. It lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning in God. And then she goes on and says, that in this I saw three things. The first, that God made it. The second, that God loves it. The third, that God keeps it. That God loves it, or that God made it, God loves it, and God keeps it. So Dr. Beth Felker-Jones, in her book on practicing Christian doctrine, talks about this quote from Julian. And says this is a helpful understanding for beginning a thing, she begins the cha- her chapter on the doctrine of creation with this quote. And she says that framework that Julian provides, that God made it, God loves it, and God sustains it, is a helpful way to think about what we call the doctrine of creation. And you came to church on Sunday you thought, we're going to talk about doctrine? I wanted to come be encouraged. To be... Doctrine is the center of what we believe. That as Christians, we say we believe certain things. But not only do we believe those things, that they make a difference in the way that we live our lives. And so we started, as Ken mentioned earlier, this series on the Apostles' Creed, this creed that begins, I believe, and then it goes on to catalog what it is we believe. And I've talked about maybe the creed being guardrails, or maybe we could think of it as the center point, the thing that we gather around, what holds Christians together. There are various things we don't agree on, but at the center are these words of the creed. In the opening lines of the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, which comes from the early church, says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So last week we talked a little bit about what does it mean that God is Father Almighty? So he's the Father. He's the one who cares for us. He's in relationship with us. God is also Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God is also Almighty. He's sovereign. He's over all. And so we can trust in God because not only is he all-powerful, because what would it be like to have an all-powerful God who doesn't love and care for us? And on the other hand, he's father who loves and cares for us. And so he has the love and care for us and he's able to love and care for us because he has that same power. So I believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth. And so that's where the next part comes in. And this picture of God as creator opens on page one of the Bible. Very first lines of our scripture, Perhaps some of the most famous words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is this incredible picture of who God is as it goes through. And we're not going to spend all morning in Genesis 1. We could spend a month or two in Genesis 1. And there's all these great pictures of God, and He creates. And separates the light from the dark. And he separates the waters below from the waters above. And he separates the water from the land. And then he begins to populate these. He puts the sun and the moon in the, in the sky. And then he puts the birds in the water above and the fish in the water below. And then he populates the land with animals and then ultimately with humans. And then on the seventh day rest, it's this picture of God creating a space where he can dwell with people. And also a picture of a temple space, a connection between God's space and earth space all kinds of things loaded in Genesis 1. But at the core of it, it's this picture of who God is and all that he's done. And so when Moses, who we believe wrote most of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these first five books of the Bible, when he wrote this, there was a historical setting. He wasn't writing in a vacuum. He was writing And he wrote, as God gave it to him, a picture of creation. And one of the things that's helpful to understand is When the Bible describes creation, if we were to go back to the time of the writing of Genesis, maybe 1500 years before Jesus, you would have heard other cultures telling the story of creation. They would have told their understanding of where things came from. So you may have heard what was called the Atrahasic Epic. And the Atrahasic Epic tells this story of this pantheon of gods. And there were all these different levels of gods And even among the gods it worked out a lot like it works out among people who do you think did all the work the ones at the bottom well what happens when you're at the bottom and you're doing all the work who who likes doing all the work who likes working and doing all the work for everybody above them well so what happened what do you think the gods at the bottom did they said well we need to put somebody below us to do all the work and so they created human beings and that was their understanding of how creation worked was there were all these gods and the gods at the bottom were saying, why are we doing all, why are we serving the gods? Why are we making the food? Why are we bringing them all this stuff? Let's make somebody who else will do the work for us. Or there was the Enuma Elish, which tells the story of two gods, Marduk and Tiamat, and there's this great battle between them. And ultimately at the end of it, Marduk slays Tiamat, cuts her body in half and half of the body becomes the sky and half of the body becomes the land and the blood becomes people Not quite as pretty as Genesis 1. But it's this picture of creation. But you see that it's a very different picture of what it's like. And so Dr. Sandra Richter talks about in her book, Epic of Eden, she says this. She she says, Yahweh was a God unlike the others of the ancient Near East, who stood outside and above his creation. A God for whom there were no rivals and who had created humanity as his children as opposed to as his slaves. Thus, I think this is, Sandra Richter speaking. I think Genesis 1 was intended as a rehearsal of the creation event. Well, where else would you start the story? With the all-controlling theological agenda of explaining who God is and what his relationship to creation and specifically humanity looked like. In other words, the Bible starts with this picture of creation because where else are you going to start a story? Where everything comes from? And one of the central reasons that it begins there is for us to understand our relationship to God and God's relationship to his creation. And this relationship of God's creation is all through the Bible. Jan read this Psalm, Psalm 104, but there's many pictures of that, these celebrations of what creation is like and all the good things about it. And what we realize is this is the starting place. The starting place is the character of God. Starting place for understanding creation as a character of God. Now we, this, many people love this chapel and come out here for lots of different reasons. One is it's a lot more comfortable out here. You can dress whatever you can, pick your lawn chairs. You can sit far away, close up. But the other is it's a beautiful setting, isn't it? I mean, there's these towering pines or these these flowers, and all around us there's this beauty of creation. But understanding a doctrine of creation doesn't begin with this beauty. Nor does understanding the doctrine of creation begin with science, because science can tell us a whole lot about creation. Understanding the doctrine of creation begins with the character of God and who God is. And so we begin with, back to those words from Julian. And the first thing that Julian of Norwich said about creation, and it wasn't, again, we're not saying Julian of Norwich is the Bible, but she was drawing on the words of Scripture is, God made it, which... Julian of Norwich, God, if she started reading her Bible, and even if she didn't get any farther than Genesis 1-1, she knew that, right? That in the beginning, what? God made the heavens and the earth. So it begins there with this picture of God making all things. Shows up in other places throughout the Bible, John chapter 1, Psalm 33. Other places in the Bible talks about this picture of God making things. So the fancy word that scientists use to describe it, or theologians, I should say, describe it, is creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. In other words, God made everything out of nothing, all things. So in Hebrews 11:3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Or in John 1, 3, Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. So in other words, God didn't show up on the scene in Genesis 1, 1, look around and say, wow, there's all this cool stuff. Let me make something. He didn't walk into a room filled with Legos or amino acids and molecules and all these different elements and say, wow, let me take some stuff and put it together. Instead, he created out of nothing. In fact, there's a joke that goes something like this. It tells that some scientists one time challenged God and said, we think we can make a better human being than you. And so God said, you're on. And so they begin and God's over in the one corner. He's got the dust in the clay and he's forming it into human being 3.0. And then God looks over and he sees the scientists over there and they've got the dust and the clay and they're working on it, and they've got their machines picked up and God says, uh, excuse me, that's my clay and dust. You're going to have to make your own. And so there's this picture of who we understand God to be God, that God has made all things and he makes it out of nothing. And that's important because that means that nothing else is the same status as God. Everything we see and touch, everything we know other than God came from God. That puts God in a different category than everything else. It also means there's a distinction between God and creation. If God created all things then God and creation are not the same. In some religions, in some ways of thinking, God and creation are the same. So some people might look and say, in that tree is God. Or in the sky and in the wind is God. That's not the biblical idea of creation. God made all those things. God is everywhere, but God is not the tree. God is not the dirt. God is not the flower. But instead, God is separate from those. The other thing it tells us is God is independent from creation. God existed before creation, so God didn't need creation. And God didn't create because he was lonely. Remember we talk about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God existed as Trinity before all time. God didn't look and say, man, I'm really getting bored. I'm lonely. What am I going to do? I think I'll make something. But God instead creates out of his love and generosity. God creates creatures to share with him. So God made it. The second thing we want to say is that God loves it. So if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and read the rest of it, we read through this creation of God separates the light from the dark and calls the light day and the dark night. And then it says, and he called it good. And it goes on like that for all these days of creation, describing everything as good. And all things are good. And he loves, God loves his creation. And it shows up other places. So there's a story we might wonder about, well, how does that show his love? Genesis chapter six through nine, creation kind of goes downhill. And if you're not up on your Bible references, that's when God sends a flood and wipes everything out, or most everything out, all the living things. You think, well, how does that display God's love? Because at the end of the story, it's a quick refresher on the story if you don't remember the story. So God looks down, He's disappointed because there's violence over all the earth except for one man, Noah, and his sons. And so Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives all get on the ark along with some animals. Floods come down, cover the earth, they're on this ark. And then at the end, they come off the ark and they come out of the ark and Noah offers up a sacrifice and gives thanks to God. And then God does something. Does anybody remember what God does? Puts a rainbow in the sky, right? And he says about this rainbow, this is the sign of this is Genesis nine seventeen. This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. It isn't just a covenant between God and people, but all these different things. He says, I'm making between me and you and every living creature a covenant for all generations to come. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all the earth. So God loves not just people but creation. Or the story of Jonah. me remember the story of Jonah? This prophet who doesn't do what God wants. Giant fish swallows. We remember that. the Giant fish spits Jonah up and Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. And most of us think, well, that's the end of the story. Well, Jonah preaches to the city of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh turn around and Jonah's mad about it. And Jonah's sitting outside and God sends a plant to shade him. And then the tree's curse. But at the end, this is what God says. This is Jonah 4.11. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And then this weird line, and also many animals. You think, wait. So God is concerned not only with the people of the city, but with the animals and all that's in them. And so we think God loves it because creation is good. And this idea of goodness is essential to what we think about as a doctor of creation. That God created all things good because in the early church, there was a belief, a kind of system of thought called Gnosticism. There won't be a quiz on it afterwards. You don't have to remember that. Gnosticism, Gnosticism comes from this Greek word meaning gnosis or knowledge, People, and and they didn't call it. no one went around with t-shirts that said, "I'm I'm a Gnostic. They didn't have little Gnostic bumper stickers on their chariots. But it was this picture of, in Gnosticism, there were two key beliefs. One, or this kind of school of thinking, if you will. One was that there was special knowledge needed to gain entrance to God's presence. And so there were these secrets. And if you knew that, hence the term Gnosticism or Gnosis, You knew that. But the second thing that Gnostics believed was that there was a separation between the spiritual and the physical. That what was spiritual was good. Physical, bad. And so there was this distinction between... So the picture of Gnosticism was you had this secret knowledge so that ultimately you could escape this physical bonds and become a purely spiritual being living with God. It's, we see that as a contrast to the Bible where it says that all is good. So when God creates and says all things are good, and he talks about it even that psalm, he makes springs pour water into the ravines, it flows beyond the mountains, and he gives water. He cares and he says all creation is good. And then it's closely connected with the last one. So remember what we said, God made it, God loves it, and God sustains it. And so in other words, Part of what we're saying is that God doesn't just wind creation up. God doesn't create everything, wind it up, put everything into place and kind of step back and say, okay, I'm going to go do something else. But instead, God is involved with it. If you were listening in Psalm 104 or earlier, there's these whole lines. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. I've a question for you. Do you think the lions out on the plains are looking around and saying, God, send me a gazelle. Something, anything, preferably a slow one, so I don't have to run too hard. You know, when the birds are looking around in the morning, they're saying, "God, just make some, give me some worms, some bugs, whatever." Mosquitoes are flying around. You now, those may be a result of the fall. I I struggle still with <laughs> all creation is good, but somehow it is. And there was one buzzing me earlier. And but they don't fly. They don't say, "God." Send me somebody nice and warm so that I can... No. It says, all creatures look to you. So it's this picture of God sustaining. God has created things and he sustains it. It's this wonderful picture that the ancient Israelites had of everything that's happening when the rain falls and the animals have their food. All these things are a result of God's providence or God's care for creation. And there are these implications about what it is that it's not just good and it's not just good to know. So if we have a creation that God made, God loves, and God sustains it, that God is making sure all things hold together. And so in other words, if God withdrew his power, withdrew his things, everything would cease to exist. Now that's the big level of, that's what we would call maybe the doctrine. We say, okay, nice to know. We're not taking a theology quiz though. I mean, nobody's going to ask us when we go out on the street tomorrow, And nobody's going to wake up in the morning thinking, okay, I know these three things about God. God made creation, God loves creation, and God sustains creation. But one of the questions we ultimately ask ourselves is, so what, right? What does this mean to us? And I think that's the important thing that we move from simply saying a creed which says, I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth, to saying, how does that make a difference in our day-to-day life? And I actually have 10 things today. So sometimes you think, "Ah, like one thing I'm going to take. I got 10 You don't have to do all 10. Maybe just pick one or think about what it is. Number one, if God made all things and created us, then we're called to be stewards of creation, not possessors of creation. God's the one who makes it. It belongs to God. He puts it into our hands to care for it. And that takes shape in so many different ways in which we live our lives as people. We recognize that the world in which we live There are limited resources of everything. And so it may be simply a matter of we're practicing good stewardship. We're practicing what it looks like to be a Christian. If we drive down the street and instead of simply throwing our trash out the window, we keep it and we hold on to it until the next place we can get and there's a trash can. We're practicing good stewardship when we say, do I need to make those five trips to the store today or can I make one trip and save a little bit of gasoline? when we find something a little more fuel efficient, when we care for the creation around us and how we use water and all those things. So all those are pictures of living as followers of Jesus, as under God, recognizing that God is the creator of all things by caring for creation. Now, some of us sometimes we think, oh, that sounds like socialism or that sounds like environmentalism. You're saying we're supposed to be a bunch of tree huggers now. There's a difference between those things because For many people, many people will advocate care of nature or creation, but there's a difference. And I want to think about the difference between those two words even. Sometimes we talk about nature and we talk about creation. Think about even using those two different words, how it reflects what we think of. Nature is just something abstract, but creation means what there was a creator who created it. And so as we care for creation, it's taking care of what God is done. All right, that's number one. Number two, we are here because God wants us here. We're not here simply by accident. We're not here simply because of some random chance or whatever, but we're here because God wants us here, which means we have worth and we have dignity. And so do all other human beings. And so the doctrine of creation begins to teach us that when we see other people, they are creations of God. Or as Genesis 1 described, people created in the image of God. Which means we need to care and love them. And the truth is, it's not always easy to love other people, is it? And sometimes we put people in different categories and lumps, and it's saying, no, but we have to think of all people as created in His image. And they're here because God made them, and they have worth and they have dignity. And that all begins with that simple, back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. God made it, God loves it, God sustains it. And so we're called to love. Number three, that there is a creator means there is meaning. That God created and he gave meaning to things. And in fact, he created us for a purpose. So even in Ephesians 2, it says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're created for a purpose. And that purpose finds its fulfillment in Jesus. All right. We're through three of them. Can we make seven more? All right. Moving along. Number four, we belong to Him. We're created by God, therefore, we belong to Him. Sometimes we like to think I'm my own person. I belong to me. Nobody else controls what I do. It's an illusion, it's a fantasy. I think, oh, I make all my own decisions. I'm, I'm a self-made man. Does anyone want to believe the way I dress even or the way I cut my hair? Or all the, the way I talk is all just my own choice. We like to think that, don't we? But the truth is we've been shaped by an infinite number of people and all the people and ideas around us. We like to think, oh, I belong to me. But what the Bible teaches us is, no, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And that also means we're safe in him. All right, that's number four. Number five, if God made it, God loves it, God sustains it. And if we remember that all is good, that means what we do with our bodies matter. And so when we get into issues of human sexuality, it isn't simply a matter of like, well, that's just something for consenting adults in the privacy of their own home. And it's, it's just something between me and somebody else. And it's not a separation between, well, I have my spiritual life and my time of prayer, but then what I do with my body, that doesn't really matter. Because God created our bodies and embodied us. And in fact, in about 10 weeks, we're going to come back to this because at the end of the creed, it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. In other words, creation has a destination and that destination is still a physical destination. So what we do with our bodies matter. We can't simply say, oh, that's just, there's these things. And that ties into number six. We're putting two together almost. That we sometimes want to distinguish between sacred and secular. Or like, there's the sacred stuff. You know, there's there's church stuff. And then there's the rest of the, you know, there's this one hour of the week where we come and we're together and we sing songs and we do church stuff. We do sacred stuff. And then we've got 167 hours of the rest of the week. That's our other stuff we do. For those of you who work, you have your your real job or your other job or your day-to-day job, the job that pays, and that's secular work. But then Pastor Carl, he's got his sacred work because he's a pastor. But the Bible never makes that distinction. You see, that goes back to the Gnostics who wanted to make a difference between the spiritual and the physical, between the good and the bad. But in fact, everything we do is sacred. When you go to work, when you brush your teeth, all of the acts of life, when you're washing dishes, when you're gardening, all of those acts are acts of sacred. It's all goes together. And so we need to rethink all those distinctions that we make between the jobs we do and between church stuff or even between different kinds of roles. My role is no more sacred than your role is. We all have the same kind of roles. We're all participants in God's good creation. We're all created good. All right, we're on the downhill slope now. Number seven. If God is the maker of all things, the one who spoke it in existence, then creatures have limits. We only exist because God created us. In other words, we are called to depend on God. Again, this goes into lots of things that we see it often in the world where we're like, what, people can do anything. And there's some crazy things that people are starting to do. And I saw this one experiment recently where it was with, um, with hamsters. And so are you familiar with the, uh, the, the splicer, the gene splicer? And I can't think of what the name of it, this gene splicer, where they can go in a CRISPR where they can go in and edit genes. And so hamsters, when you think of a hamster, do you think of like a ferocious, I mean, Hamsters are pretty friendly little animals, right? Well, so these scientists thought, well, we can use CRISPR and we can edit out, edit their genes a little bit to make them even friendlier. It's like, how does you make a hamster friendlier? Scientists went in, started editing the genes. Anyone want to take a guess how the hamsters turned out? Yeah, they weren't so friendly anymore. They took out what they thought were the genes that made them less social and it actually made them less social. And so there's pictures like creatures have limits. We're not designed to do all those things. And the other thing is I can't do everything. I can't call things into existence. I can take existing things and I can make things out of them. Sometimes well, sometimes not so well. And that's true for all of us. God spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. We just take what is. And we depend on God. Our lives are limited. We can't make it rain. We can't make the sunshine. We can't do all those things. And so when we talk about the doctrine of creation, it's a reminder that we have limits. And having limits, sometimes I think, oh man, I've got, of... doctrine of creation sounds terrible. You're putting limits on me. No. We put on the, look on the plus side of it. It's like having limits reminds and calls us to depend on God. So we think of that positive side. Limits, calls us dependent on God. Doctor of Creation, number eight, reminds us of God's generosity. Look at this. I mean, God didn't have to do all this. He could have put us on a desert, He could have given us one type of tree in all the world, one type of bird, one type of flower. And we would have been content because we would not have known better, but instead God creates an immense generosity an incredible beauty and gives and gives and creates all these things and just the wonder of creation and all the things around us. I think we live in Western Michigan and I've lived in a number of places and every place has its own unique beauty. Although there's a few places I've still yet to find the beauty and we won't name those, but, but there are places in the world that are just filled with beauty. What? We don't have mountains, but we have these beaches, it's beautiful sand beaches, and be able to sit and watch a sunset over, over the lake, and we, these woods we can walk through, and sand dunes, and all this wonder and beauty. And it's a reminder as we see those things of how good and generous God is. That not only he made us, but he made all that we see. Almost there, two more. God needs nothing, number nine. So Acts 17.25 says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else. God doesn't need anything. Sometimes we think, oh, I got some important work to do. God really needs me today. Doctor of creation says, no, he doesn't. God doesn't need you. But the incredible thing is God still invites you to participate. God encourages you and says, I want you to be a part of it. So when we go and we do things and whether we're caring for creation or sharing the good news of Jesus or teaching a Bible study or serving the poor or advocating for justice, God doesn't need us. He invites us to do it, but God doesn't need us. But the flip side of that is that love is he may not need us, but he invites us to. It's like, Parents who sometimes have their children help them. Or grandparents who have their children help them. If you're a parent or grandparent or an aunt or uncle, sometimes having a child help you is more work, isn't it? Because why? You could do it all yourself. In other words, as a parent, you don't need the child's help. But why? Why do you invite the child to help? To learn learn and to love. To show your love for them. And it's in the same way that God doesn't need us, but instead He invites us to. All right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Last one. When we think about the doctrine of creation, all that we've learned is it ought to call us to praise God, to see the wonder and the goodness in the rest of creation. And remembering we are part of creation, sometimes we make that distinction wow, creation's so great. We're part of that too. And so there are these incredible pictures in like Psalm 104, this whole psalm that goes through and it starts off with what? Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. And then it ends, praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Because the writer of the psalm has looked around and seen the wonder of creation. But the writer doesn't just simply stop and say, wow, those trees are amazing. I mean, even... Oh, there's one line in there where it talks about they're talking about God creating the sea vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. It's like, God just created sea monsters, why? Just have some fun out there. Whatever Leviathan is, whatever. Because the people, the seafaring people didn't know there was a lot of weird stuff out there. We're still finding weird stuff under the sea, but it's this idea that, like, God created this stuff just for fun. And as we see the wonder of creation, our family likes going to zoos and to different things, and to see all the different My kids have a subscription to Ranger Rick, and they're always telling me about these creatures, these animals and stuff. And they're like, oh, there's this thing that's been too wrong. I'm like, what? I've never heard of these things. All these different animals and wonder things of animals that look like they're permanently smiling or jumping or dancing or whatever they do. And God created all these things. And they're laughing at me because I don't know what I'm talking about. But, <laughs> and God loves them too. So, but there's this picture of God creating all these things, but inviting us to say, when we look at these things, not to just say, wow, not just what a beautiful sunset, but what a beautiful God. Remember, I cut out a cartoon years ago. I probably in high school and I I don't think you even know that there was a, a comic strip called Ziggy. I don't know if anybody remembers Ziggy. He was this little short guy. And there was just this picture of Ziggy standing on a beach. And the water's there and the sun's setting. It reminded me of a lot of the sunsets I saw over Lake Michigan growing up. And it's just Ziggy saying, Yay, God. And it's just this great picture that when we think about the doctrine of creation, that's really what all of creation, all of it is doing, is calling us ultimately to give praise to God for who he is. And so my hope for all of us is whatever you do with all these things, at the end, as you go through your week and as you're noticing things, as you're seeing butterflies or flowers or if you're walking in the woods or sitting on the beach, that you not simply notice the beauty of creation but that it calls your mind and attention to the beauty and the wonder of the God who made it all. Then we might praise him. So I'm going to invite our worship team up. And as they're coming up, I'm going to read one final psalm. That's an invitation that this is from Psalm 148. Psalm 148 says this, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the highest heights above. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do His biddings. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creature and flying bird, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord.